Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your son. We are thankful that he came to die for us so that we can live eternally with him. We thank you for this record that we will study tonight, uh, the testing of Jesus the Messiah to prove that he was perfect in perfect conformity with the law and the perfect sacrifice under the law to pay for the sins of the world. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we come tonight to some of the very last events of Jesus' life where we get to see, actually that's, this is the better title, Jesus' perfection. This is still part of his official presentation, these last few days before the crucifixion, these days between Nisan 10 and Nisan 14, which would be April 4th, probably Nisan uh, 12 here, that Jesus is being tested to see whether he has spot or blemish. And so we begin then with the inspection of the lamb. He is back in Jerusalem on this probably Tuesday morning. And he is going to prove himself to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the reason for these challenges are twofold from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, those who are about to challenge him. They are seeking, first of all, to discredit him to the public, to get him to say something that will turn them against him. Their second goal is to find some accusation that they can bring against him so that they can have him punished to death. So they are specifically looking for something punishable under Roman law because at this point, Israel is not allowed to put its own prisoners to death. However, despite this human intention of these Sadducees, Pharisees, and Herodians, God has a different intention. Once again, that is to show that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God, the Passover sacrifice, the one who came to fulfill the law of Moses. As he said back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And here he is demonstrating that he has indeed done exactly what he said he would come to do. He came to be the righteousness of the law. His first test comes from the priests and the elders. The priest class in first century Israel were the Sadducees. The elders were the Pharisees. So this is a duo of the Sadducees and Pharisees, political and religious opponents. In that day, it would be like the Republicans and Democrats coming together to agree on something. The question is specifically of Jesus' authority. They come and they ask him, as he's preaching and teaching in the temple, who gives you the authority? Now Jesus, once again, doesn't directly answer them. He answers them with a question. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees gain their authority not from God to interpret the law, but from their rabbi. 
Whoever taught them to interpret it that way and whoever taught them to interpret it that way, they ascribe this authority back to their rabbi. Well, Jesus does not have a human rabbi. He was taught directly by God and he has the authority to interpret the word of God because he is the word of God. But he answers with a question. He asks them whether or not John's baptism was from heaven or from men. Now, John had been martyred, and so the people's affections towards him had naturally grown, and they viewed him now as a true prophet. And so if the Pharisees were to say that it was from men, then the people would reject the Pharisees. Yet here they are trying to get the people to reject Jesus. They've tried to put him between a rock and a hard place, and he's put them there. Because if they admit that it is from heaven, then the question would naturally be, why then do they reject John? Because implicitly here, we have Jesus' answer to their question. One of the many proofs of Jesus' authority was the proof of John the forerunner. If they received John the forerunner as from heaven, a messenger sent from heaven, they would recognize Jesus' authority as from heaven. But once again, Jesus is not teaching directly at this point since his rejection. His clear words have turned to parabolic words, and he teaches them about his authority with three parables. The first is the parable of the two sons. A father has two sons, and he tells his first sons, go into the vineyard and work. And they say no. But in the end, they repent and they go and work in the vineyard. He has a second son. He tells him also to go into the vineyard to work. And this one says, okay. But in the end, does not go into the vineyard to work. Now in these parables, the vineyard is always Israel. Jesus is using imagery from Isaiah 5. And the Pharisees pick up on this, and we'll see that in the second parable. But Jesus asks them the question, which of these two sons was faithful? The one who said he would not, but then did, or the one who said he would, but did not? And the Pharisees naturally respond. Let me put that in here. Yeah, they naturally say that the first was faithful and the second was not. Now, Israel had been commanded way back in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, to believe God and to obey his law. The sinners in Israel, the Am Haaretz, the people of the land, had rejected the law. They had said no. But when the fulfillment of the law arrived, when the Messiah showed up, many of them received him. So even though they said at first no, when push came to shove, they went out and obeyed God. But those who had said that they would obey, those who had willingly put themselves under the law, when the Messiah came, they rejected him. And in so doing, they rejected the law. And so the first sons, the sinners of Israel, had been more faithful to God than the Pharisees. And Jesus tells them as much. Truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Ouch. 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. You know, this sounds an awful lot like an historical event in Israel under King Saul. And we learn a nice principle from this. The Lord has much delight in the Lord has as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. It's a question, sorry. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Now they understood this. One of their questions is going to lead them to even say this very conclusion in the final trial of Jesus. But here they don't seem to understand that their faithfulness is desired above their outward adherence to the law. They need to be inwardly and outwardly obedient to the law. And just as Saul's failure to be obedient to God's word caused him to be rejected by God, so these Pharisees' refusal to obey God's word leads to their rejection. The prophet Samuel said of Saul, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Once the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians finished their trial, headed up by the Pharisees, their trial of Jesus, Jesus will publicly reject the Pharisees. The second parable he provides is the parable of the vineyard. We have a landowner who carefully cultivates a vineyard. This brings in that imagery of Isaiah 5. And he places it in the care of some vine growers. They are to cultivate the land and to produce fruit from it. The fruit here, as in most of the parables, speaks of faith. Now the landowner sends a group of slaves to go collect the fruit of the land, the vineyard, and they are brutalized, beaten, and killed. He sends a second delegation, and once again they are brutalized, beaten, and killed. Finally, he sends a third delegation. They are brutalized, beaten, and killed. And then the landowner decides to send his own son, the heir, of the vineyard, and the vine growers decide that if they kill the heir, they can have the land for themselves. They are trying to take the kingdom by violence. So they cast the son out of the vineyard. Remember, the vineyard represents Israel. They throw him into the hands of the Gentiles, and they have him killed as well. Now Jesus asks them what the landowner is going to do to these vine growers when he returns. And they show that they understood that he is speaking from Isaiah 5 because in one verse they summarize the entire teaching of Isaiah 5. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. God had entrusted to the leaders of Israel 
to produce faith. In following the law, they should see their need for God, and they should depend on God. And the leaders led Israel in the opposite direction, away from faith in God, away from trust in his righteousness, and into self-righteousness. And so Jesus tells them, do you never read the scriptures? Or did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is Psalm 118.22, the same psalm as was sung in Jerusalem just two days prior. He is asking them, do they really understand what's going on here? The stone which the builders rejected, and that is the Pharisees. What are they building? Well, they are not building for God. They are not building in God's will. They are building something of their own. They have built a fence around the law so that no one actually gets close to the law. No one actually obeys the law of Moses because they are obeying the laws of man instead. And when Jesus, the Messiah, comes by, he doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't conform to the oral law. So he's a stone that's rejected. He doesn't fit in their human system, even though he is the cornerstone of the Mosaic law. He is the chief cornerstone. And Jesus continues, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Remember, he is speaking here to the religious leaders of first century Israel. He is not taking the promise of the kingdom away from Israel. He is taking it away from these religious leaders and the people who are under them, first century Israel. It will be given to a later generation of Israel, which has produced the fruit of faith. Those who have believed in Jesus, the Messiah. We see this in Hosea 5.15. It says, He will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. You know, Hosea 5.15 through 16.3 could almost be placed right in these uh, few chapters of Matthew 21, 22, 23. It's almost as if the same spirit inspired the entire canon of scripture. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. This looks forward to the tribulation period where the last generation of Israel will be converted through tribulation. Through the rampant anti-Semitism of the false Messiah, who is doing everything in his power to destroy Israel. They will turn to the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they will be converted. Come, let us return to the Lord, the leaders of Israel will lead them to say. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. And then Jesus reminds them, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but in whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And Jesus is referring here to Isaiah 8, verses 14 through 15. He shall become a sanctuary, 
but to both the house of Israel, houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over him, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. To the remnant, the believing Israel, Jesus the Messiah, the chief cornerstone will be a sanctuary. But to those who have rejected him, he will be a stone of stumbling. And once they have stumbled over him, he will crush them. This also reminds us of Daniel 2. That kingdom of the Lord, which will crush the kingdoms of this earth. It's the stone cut without hands. It's not developed here on earth. It's not made by human invention. It is a kingdom that comes directly from God. And it will have its establishment on this earth, not by man bringing it in, not by man writing the law code, but by God presenting his righteous son as the king over this earth in the perfect fulfillment of his law, the Mosaic law, as recorded in the Hebrew Bible. And then he gives his third parable, the parable of the wedding. In this parable, there is a king and he has a son. This king is throwing a wedding for his son. And he sends out some slaves to bring in all those who are invited. And these slaves are killed. He sends out another delegation of slaves. Once again, the invitation is rejected and the slaves are killed. When John appeared on the stage, he was offering Israel the kingdom. Israel's response was generally among the religious rulership rejection. The earthly wiles of this world prevented them from receiving the kingdom. They had more wealth and riches in this world than in the next. And so they rejected John and his disciples. And then Jesus and his disciples came offering the kingdom. They rejected the kingdom and they would in turn martyr each one of Jesus' disciples save alone for John. And they would have Jesus killed as well. Naturally, the king was enraged. And so he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. This finds its fulfillment in AD 70. They killed and rejected God's messengers. They rejected the kingdom. And God destroyed what they held so dear, their system, their city. They had rejected the true significance of it anyways. They had rejected the Messiah, the Messiah of the temple. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Why were they not worthy? Because they had no faith. They did not believe in the Messiah. They did not believe in the Son of God. And so God tells the slaves to go out beyond Israel and to gather Gentiles. Now this is not to inherit the kingdom as their own inheritance, but to take part in Israel's inheritance. 
But notice, just like the other kingdom parables, this jumps over the church age. And it jumps back to when Israel will again be the center and primary focus, not of God's eye, it is always the center and focus of God's eye, but of God's activity on earth. In the tribulation period, when the church has been removed from this earth, there will be Gentiles who survived the tribulation period, having not put their loyalty in the false Messiah, but also not having put their loyalty, their faith, into the true Messiah. We'll look at this, I believe, next week in the sheep and goat judgment. But here, Jesus gives it in parabolic form. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. See, this is one reason why a proper understanding of eschatology is so critical. Because if we don't understand God's prophetic plan that he has revealed to us, we might misstep when we come places like this and say, well, if he got into the kingdom of heaven, he must have had faith. And then he can be rejected despite his faith and cast into hell. This is an improper interpretation, primarily because they don't read the book of Daniel. They don't read the book of Revelation, which teaches that there is a gap between the end of the tribulation period and the beginning of the kingdom. This gap is about 75 days. During this time, the earth will be cleansed by Jesus the Messiah. This is the coming of the stone that crushes the world kingdoms and expands rapidly to spread throughout the whole earth. This takes 75 days. During the 75 days, anyone who is found alive on earth who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ will be cast out of the kingdom. They do not have access. And why? Not because they weren't good enough Christians, but because they had no faith at all. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Hopefully the message for the Pharisees was clear enough. They needed to read the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The problem wasn't that he didn't clean up his act. The problem was that he tried to wear his own clothes to the dinner party. He didn't accept the clothes offered to him, the righteousness of the Messiah. How do you accept those? You receive them by faith. Instead, he came wearing his own filthy garments. They might have been the best he had, and he may have been proud of them, but they were not fit attire for the kingdom of God. No man's works will get them one inch closer to the kingdom. Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is 
unclean. And all our unrighteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of our righteous deeds, rather. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. This man came in Isaiah 64 clothing, his own works, his own righteousness, rather than Isaiah 61 clothing, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of the Messiah. Paul puts it this way, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They made themselves righteous in their own works, and this did not pass muster. The next group that came up to challenge Jesus was the Pharisees and the Herodians. Once again, a party that did not see eye to eye. The Pharisees were the people of the Zealots who vehemently opposed Roman rule, and the Herodians were sympathetic to Roman rule. They even benefited from it, but they only supported it through the house of Herod. So long as Herod was the Roman proxy, they supported Roman rule. And so these two could not be more opposed politically in Israel. And yet they came together once again with a common enemy, Jesus Christ. And they posed to him what was supposed to be a challenging question for him. Should they pay the poll tax to Caesar? The Pharisees taught that admitting the legality of the Romans' taxes on them would subvert God's sovereign authority over Israel and that they would be subjecting themselves to Roman rule in lieu of God's rule. And the Herodians, once again, were sympathetic towards Roman taxes. They benefited from them. Jesus' response is not to admit their false premise, but to teach them something new. He has them bring to him a coin that can be used to pay the poll tax. Now, there are three different kinds of coinage circulating in Rome in these days. There is the Israeli coinage, which can be used in the temple. There is the Greek coins, and there are the Roman coins. The Greek and the Roman coins cannot be used in the temple. They are not admissible under the Mosaic law because they have the graven image of a man on them, of Caesar. And so they can't be used to pay the taxes to the temple anyways. The only thing that can be done with them is to return them to Caesar. In fact, in that day when we were still on the gold standard, money in circulation was representation of the wealth of the ruler, the ruler whose image was graven on it. That money belonged to Caesar anyways. Give it back to Caesar. Implicitly within this statement of him, his, showing them that the image of someone on something means that it belongs to them. They should have understood that they themselves belong to God. God has bestowed his image on each one of his created people. Just as they would, should return these worldly goods to Caesar, they are of no heavenly good, they should return themselves to God. And this they were not doing. But Jesus denied their premise. 
to pay taxes to Caesar and even to admit that this is legal is not to subvert God's sovereign authority. It is a burden. It is not right. It is not how Israel is supposed to be managed. But because of their sin, they have come under this punishment. God recognizes two authorities, his divine authority and his delegated authority. At this time, Israel is under the time of the Gentiles, a punishment for their disobedience. Genesis 9 and Daniel 4 teach of this delegated authority, that we are to obey human governments so long as they do not tell us to disobey God. And so, paying the taxes to Rome out of Rome's coinage was not disobeying God. The Herodians bow out of the fight at this point, but the Sadducees come at him alone, and they use what they probably have used on Pharisees to try to make the Pharisees look like fools. We don't know much about the Sadducees. They didn't write much themselves. What we know about them, we know through the writing of the Pharisees, who would record their clever responses to the Sadducees' arguments. So here we get to see the other side of the coin through the inspired word of God. And we see these Sadducees come up to Jesus with one of their clever situations used to make the Pharisees look like fools. The problem is the Pharisees were right about this one and the Sadducees were wrong. And Jesus shows them that. They come up and they ask Jesus, oh, I might say, first of all, the Sadducees do not accept the resurrection. They do not believe that the resurrection is taught in scripture because it is not found explicitly in the Pentateuch, the books written by Moses. They do accept the prophets and the writings as uh, secondary doctrine, but not as primary doctrine. They can't build their doctrine off of it. So the resurrection not being taught explicitly there, like it is in Daniel, Isaiah, and Job, they don't believe in a resurrection. So their question to Jesus then is, if a woman's husband dies and she has not given him a child, and then the brother marries her, and then the next brother, and then the next brother, each one of them dying and none of them producing a child, then whose wife is she in the resurrection? They've made a few presuppositions, and one of them is no uh, stranger to humanity and human's way of thinking. This is the error of uh, uniformitarianism. They believe that the life to come is going to be just like the life now, that when God, if God were to resurrect, it would be the same exact form of life just restored to humanity. So Jesus tells them that they do not understand the power of God, that he will give them a different kind of life, not just restored natural life, but eternal life. Jesus says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, worthy by faith in the one true righteousness of God, the Messiah, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like, fallen, they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now we looked at this when we saw where we were in 
Genesis 3 and 4, and I guess we saw it in 5 as well, a couple of months ago. Human propagation was something that God gave to man, knowing that man would fall. And in order to produce the Messiah as a man, he made, the, he made man not like the angels who do not propagate, but he made them so that they could reproduce biologically. Now what Jesus is teaching here is not that man will lose his capability physically, but since it is not in the will of God, they will not do it. This is like the angels in heaven who also have the capability to reproduce themselves, and some of them fell and did reproduce themselves with mankind. But those who are in heaven, Jesus says, do not marry and do not reproduce. Jesus could have said, like the angels. He specifically specified where those angels are who are obedient to God's will and do not reproduce themselves on the contrary, Genesis 6.4 teaches us that the angels who were on the earth married the daughters of men and produced the Nephilim. To Peter 2.4 and Jude 6-7 specifies as well that these, were, that these sons of God were angels. And they are called sons of God in a similar way here as Jesus calls those who have undergone the resurrection, sons of God. They are the direct propagation of God. You see, man in his biological features can reproduce biologically, but not spiritually. God has no grandchildren, as we've heard said before, because each person becomes a son of God through faith and regeneration. This, even in a resurrected body, presumably a man could not do. Only God makes sons of God. And those in the resurrected state who never die have no need of human propagation and it is no longer in God's will for them to reproduce. So the question that the Sadducees pose to Jesus is a moot question. There is no need for marriage. We will be married directly to Jesus, the Messiah. Marriage here on earth is a foreshadow of that marriage. And so we are looking forward to that greater thing. They have their minds stuck on the earth while Jesus is teaching things aren't like that in the world to come. So they not only do not understand the power of God, the power of his resurrection, but they don't read their scriptures either. And then Jesus shows them exactly where they can find the resurrection in the Old Testament. And this is one that apparently the Pharisees had not seen either. And we'll see that they're actually impressed by Jesus, and they probably adopted this for themselves. This would be a good way to put the Sadducees to shame. Jesus says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the burning bush, Exodus 3, 6, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now this is 
his shorthand for the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant that was promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob with specific promises for the living, not only for the descendants, but for the patriarchs themselves. Genesis 17:7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, God, uh, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now, if you trace the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the land of Canaan, an everlasting seed, and blessing from God, you see that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never received what they were promised from God. God will be and is faithful to his promises. In order for him to fulfill this promise, they have to be resurrected into the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant where Israel is dwelling in their land. If they read Daniel 12.2 and they accepted it as doctrine, they would see this. It teaches the same thing explicitly. The author of Hebrews gives us another argument. This one Jesus didn't bring up, but it follows the same principle. Hebrews 11.17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. God had made a specific promise through Isaac. God had promised that all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant would come to him, not through any other son, but through Isaac alone. And Isaac had produced no heir. And so he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he is also receiving him back as a type. Abraham had this faith that the Sadducees did not. In fact, when we go back after seeing what the author of Hebrews interpreted as going on in Abraham's mind, we see that it is perfectly consistent with what Abraham is telling those around him at this time. In Genesis 22, 5, when he is going to offer Abraham or going to offer Isaac on the altar, God has already told him what he expects of him. He is faithful in going about and doing it, but he hasn't told anyone else what he's going to do. Abraham said to his young men, those who had accompanied him, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad, Isaac, will go over there. This go is a plural verb. Both of them are going to go. We will worship, again, a plural verb, and return to you, a plural verb. Abraham and Isaac alone are going up to the mountain, and Abraham fully expects to return, not by himself, but with Isaac, even though he knows that God has required Isaac as a sacrifice. Now he tells his son Isaac, God will provide a sacrifice. Sometimes we take this to interpret that Abraham thought God's going to change his mind and have something step in and be the sacrifice instead. This apparently from the author of Hebrews is not the case. Abraham knew that God had already provided the sacrifice, Isaac. Abraham was probably taken aback 
by God's actual replacement of this sacrifice with another. And so the Sadducees were put to shame. Jesus showed them where in the scripture that they accepted as able to make doctrine from, where they could find this doctrine of the resurrection. They were silenced. The Pharisees were impressed, but the Pharisees had another challenge for him, and they asked him, which of the commandments is the greatest of all? Jesus has been asked this question before, and he gives almost the same answer. He says, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, rather than quoting only Deuteronomy 6, 6, he includes Deuteronomy 6, 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. This is the Shema. In Israel, it is repeated by the Israelis once in the morning, once at night, and before they die as well. Jesus also gives them the second. He says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there is no other commandment greater than these. They accepted his response, and they even said, they repeated it back to him directly, what he said, and then said, true, these are greater than the laws of the burnt sacrifice. Without love for God, you can't love your neighbor. Without love for God, the sacrifices are just a show. Love for God and love for him through faith which is how one demonstrates their love for God. Faith is part of obedience. In fact, without faith, you can't truly be obedient. Unfortunately, the Pharisees who asked him this and who knew the interpretation of the law did not actually practice it. They did not love God. They did not love their neighbors. After these challenges were finished, Jesus adds one for himself. He asks these Pharisees, who have just agreed with his interpretation of the most important commandments of the law, but still they have missed the importance of the law. He asks them a question that should spur them on to think and understand who he is, Jesus the Messiah. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Now this is one of the easiest questions Jesus could have ever asked a Jew. Whose son is the Messiah? Well, of course, Messiah is the son of David. They understood from what line the Messiah would come, but they did not understand the nature of the Messiah. And so Jesus' second part to his question gets to the heart of the issue. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? They did not understand the dual nature of Jesus. They did not understand the dual nature of the Messiah. Because as a human, 
In his human nature, he is the son of David, coming from the natural generation of David's seed line. But in his divine nature, he is Lord of David. He is David's Messiah. Jesus has two natures, a divine and a human nature. We call this the hypostatic union. And it occurs only in Jesus Christ. They did not understand this. And this caused them many issues in interpreting the Old Testament, but it also caused them issue in receiving Jesus the Messiah. Jesus closes his public ministry in the same way as it began in the temple, here just a few days before Passover, almost completely three years after it began, and he ends it with warning and lament. First, to the multitude, to those who were sitting by in the temple and listening to these challenges, especially by the Pharisees. He warns them of the character of these Pharisees. He says that they are hypocrites. They sit on the seat of Moses, which was the seat of a judge. They are the legal judges of Israel. Cases are litigated by them. They were supposed to hand down judgments based on the Mosaic law and case law which came from it. Instead, they decided to legislate from the bench. They decided to impose their ideas of what God meant rather than being faithful to God's word. They would weigh these heavy burdens down on the people and they were unrelenting in doing so towards the people. But for themselves, loopholes abounded. Nevertheless, their self-righteousness shown through in their adherence to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law commands the Jews to wear phylacteries, which were on their foreheads and contained three scriptures from the Hebrew Bible, to always keep God's word before them. This they obediently did in accordance with the Mosaic law. But in keeping the Mosaic law, they sought their own self-righteousness still. Rather than being obedient for God's glory, they became obedient for their own glory. They made these phylacteries broad so that everyone could see their obedience to the law. And their tassels as well, which were required by the Mosaic law to hang off of their robes, they made them long so that they would be visible by all to see how obedient they were, how outwardly they conformed to the Mosaic law. They also sought to exalt themselves, seeking names such as rabbi, teacher, father, and master. They were drawing glory to themselves rather than deferring glory to God, to whom it was properly due. And finally, they would prostitute their religious position. Jesus gives the example of, how does he put it? You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. 
rather than showing mercy, justice, and love, they would act cruelly and say, well, we prayed about it. I had this happen to me. Someone told me that God confirmed prophetically to them that I was a false teacher. There's no arguing with this. Simply, it is prostituting your religion. The rabbis or the uh, Pharisees here were not seeking in prayer wisdom from God, but self-enrichment. They were using what was available to them in their religion to gain for themselves. Jesus warns the people about the Pharisees because they had done this. And then Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he pronounces seven woes on them. These seven woes come full circle. Seven, because their error was a complete error. Seven being the number of completion. And the beginning is a shadow of the end as well. It comes full circle. The first woe, woe to them because they shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. And they do not even enter themselves. They rejected the Messiah, they rejected the kingdom, and they led the people of Israel to reject it as well. Jesus places the weight of the responsibility for the rejected kingdom and the destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem because of it. He places it squarely on the Pharisees and their doctrine. The second woe is to them for making proselytes and going to great lengths to make proselytes Proselytes were converts to Pharisaic Judaism. They would convert them, not to God's word, but to their word. Not to God's law, the Mosaic law, but to their law, their traditions. Their law did not save because it did not point to the Messiah. And so though they were converted, they were converted to a human system. And just as Mark Twain says, it is easier to fool someone than to convince him he's been fooled. The Pharisees made proselytes in this manner. And in so doing, they made them, what's the phrase? You make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They become worse legalists than the Pharisees. They become more committed to their false doctrine than the Pharisees, and it all stems back to these false teachers. They also prioritize the consecrated items of the temple over the consecrator of the items. The Pharisees had many ways of getting out of oaths that they had taken. Any oath not taken on the name of God was not a valid oath. And since they couldn't speak the name of God, it was nearly impossible to make a valid oath. They would substitute the name of God for things like Almighty. They would be bound to these oaths. But if they bound it to something besides God, like the temple or the altar, it was not valid. They could break this oath. Jesus says no. 
but these consecrated items, the gold of the temple, the sacrifice of the temple, those items themselves were not consecrated, but for the one who consecrated them. And they would also emphasize the minor things over the major things of the law. They would tithe down to the smallest possible seed, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. The law did call them to tithe. But the issue comes in comparison to what they did not do. In conforming to the minute outward practices of the law, they fully did away with the inward greater laws, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They made an outward show, but they had no inward conformity. They did conform themselves outwardly. They would clean the outside of their cup, but not the inside. Whatever went back into the inside of the cup would be corrupted by what was still left in there uncleaned. All that mattered to them was doing the outward regulations of the law, their self-righteousness. They were like whitewashed tombs. This is different than the accusation he made of them earlier, which was that they were hidden tombs, secretly corrupting people. Here, they are out in the open, and they make a claim but inside is death. These tombs were whitewashed on the outside, painted white, so that a priest would not accidentally become corrupted by walking on a tomb. But the whitewash on the outside didn't change what was inside. This is what the Pharisees were doing. The seventh one comes full circle, and he tells them that they have rejected the Messiah, they have rejected the kingdom because... They have rejected all the prophets that came before. They are guilty of the blood of each one of these prophets who died, giving the message of God, revealing the word of God. All the way from Abel in Genesis 4.8 to Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 through 22, the very end of the Hebrew Bible. They were guilty just like their fathers of killing these prophets. And that guilt would come on him, and then he calls them vipers and a brood of vipers, children of vipers. Though in the resurrection we become sons of God, these Pharisees are the seed of the serpent. They are not sons of God. They are not believers in God. They are not believers in the Messiah. They instead are on the opposite team. They are playing for Satan and they are puppets in his hand and they led Israel astray. Jesus ends then with a lament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. He came offering the kingdom, the kingdom which is characterized by peace and righteousness, and they rejected it. He came wanting to gather Jerusalem. Jesus loves the Jews. 
Jesus wanted to gather them, and they rejected him because they were unwilling to believe in him. And so the curse of the unpardonable sin comes on them. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. This speaks of the temple. It would be destroyed in AD 70. They rejected the true temple of God, the Messiah, the Messiah of the temple, and the temple that is left to them would be destroyed by the Romans. And then he says, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same thing that they had shouted just a few days earlier, but they had already rejected him. First century Israel had already come under the unpardonable sin, and they were bound to its penalty. The kingdom was not being offered, but it will be offered again to a later generation of Israel who will receive him. And he will return to the earth, to Israel in faith. This is part of the reason for worldwide anti-Semitism through the ages. Because Israel and Israel alone has been given the right and the responsibility of enthroning Jesus the King over the throne of this earth. Without the Jewish people, Satan foolishly thinks that God would be thwarted. God has said it, so God cannot be thwarted. Isaiah 14, no, Ezekiel 28 tells us that Satan's pride has blinded him, and this is one area where he is blinded. He will not succeed by persecuting the Jews. Instead, through that persecution, they will be converted and bring about Satan's crushing and imprisonment. Because through their conversion, they will turn to the Messiah. They will call him back. This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. From this point, he spends time only with his friends and his disciples, those who believe in him, as he awaits the day that he is betrayed and hanged on a cross. But at the end of what Jesus teaches in the temple, he sits down by the treasury boxes. I don't know if this is why, but it seems like he's exhausted. He sits down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. The smallest amount she could legally put in to this treasury as part of the Passover temple tax. She gave all that she had. Jesus, calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty. But in all she owned, all she had to live on. This woman, part of the remnant of Israel, demonstrated true faith in God. She put her trust in him and not in money. She put everything she had in his hands and was obedient to the law of Moses. She trusted God where the Pharisees who taught the law did not. And so although Jesus' ministry ends with a lament, it ends with a ray of hope. 
There is faith in Israel, and in every generation, there is faith in Israel. And in every generation, there will be faith in Israel all the way to the very end of this world. And at the very end of this world, through persecution, the entire population of Israel will be converted and will receive their king, Jesus the Messiah. And he will set foot on this earth once again, not as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the branch of David, the ruler of this world. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the gift of your Son. We are thankful that you saw fit to provide a sacrifice on our behalf, though we do not deserve it. We thank you for this gift of your Son, and we praise you. We ascribe all glory to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, next.